0: And if we may turn to the passage we're going to look at tonight, which is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Find it in page 1187 in the Church Bibles. So, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Going to pray now before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you that through the passages of scripture we've just read and the songs we've just sung, we are reminded of the excellencies and the wondrous goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we exist and live for your glory, and we do pray that by your grace, your Spirit would open our eyes and make our hearts ready to glorify you more. Lord, please. Do you glorify Jesus? Help us to see how excellent and wonderful he is from your word. And I pray that by the end of this meeting, all of us will have our hearts inflamed in worship and adoration of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's a great privilege to be preaching the word of God again. And um, I was moved to preach through the book of Hebrews, which is a wonderful book. And I'll explain in a minute. But I think what will be helpful first up is to explain the context and the original reason why the author of the Hebrews wrote his book. So Hebrews is dated to around 63-64 AD, and it's written by um, many say Paul, and that's the traditional understanding. But it's written because though Christ already came, He lived the perfect life, He obeyed all of God's laws. He died on the cross for sins, he rose again from the dead, and he ascended on high. But post Christ's ascension, there was still this temptation to revert back to the Jewish traditions and the Jewish religion. And the purpose of Hebrews is to encourage the believers who read it not to turn back away from Jesus and go back to the Jewish religion, but to persevere and press on with Jesus. And as we go through the whole book, you'll see that the temptations can really be summarized in three S's. So one of them is sin, and in particular in this book, the sin appears itself as unbelief and hard-heartedness, the distrust in what God says in his word and the unwillingness to believe it. Another one is shame. Um, I'll hope to explain later in the sermon that, humanly speaking, Christianity isn't that impressive from a worldly point of view. Um, If you compare us to other traditions, there isn't that much outward, like, outwardly that makes us impressive. And so this is very easy to bring shame to us because people won't be very impressed as they look at Christianity. And the other one is suffering. Being a Christian is difficult. Not only do you have the sufferings of the natural world, disease, death, but also you receive sufferings for being a Christian. And all these things are their temptations to take us away from Christ, back to a more easy and comfortable life where we don't have to face these struggles. So people often view Hebrews as an exaltatory sermon to keep on going with Christ and not to turn back from him. So to do so, the author refers to the Old Testament quite a lot to show us that although the Old Testament and its ways and its regulations and worshipping God looks impressive, in Christ we have the fullness and the final and complete way of worshipping Christ, that there is no higher and better way to worship God. In fact, he is the only way to worship God. To turn away is to be disastrous and lose it all. So that's the aim of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. And I think there are many lessons from what the original writer was trying to portray to his audience to what we have to learn today. So the recent census, and it made a lot of news, is that Christians are in the minority in this country now. The percentage is less than 50%. And many of those who are against and object to the Christian gospel may use this as an encouragement to further make um, inroads into opposing the gospel and make it look even more embarrassing, making our lives as Christians that much harder. And so we find a lot of similarities between what the first first century Christians faced in their time and what we face today. And so if we, can, like, if we can put ourselves or bring to remembrance the kind of struggles that the first century Christians went through. So things that they would have gone through are, we've heard the persecutions the Romans did to them, that anyone who confessed Christ as Lord rather than Caesar would be thrown to the lions and devoured. But also the struggles within the church um, saying that you have to return back to Old Testament and Jewish religion, otherwise you're not saved. The classic example is Acts 15, where some of the people in the famous Jewish council said, unless you are circumcised and observe the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it's that struggle and that temptation that Hebrews is written into. So how did the author of the Hebrews convince the early early church believers to stick with Jesus amidst all this great temptation and not to desert Jesus. Well, I hope today's sermon will help you. I titled it The Majesty and the Supremacy of Christ, because as we see how glorious and, Christ, how glorious and wonderful Christ is, that it makes no sense to depart from him, but you should be all the more motivated to praise him and stick with him through thick and thin. So the first thing I'd like to speak from today's passage is God spoke through his prophets. So verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God has revealed himself in many ways and through many people in the Old Testament. And I think we have to say that the Jewish history is very impressive. So at the time of writing, people followers of the Jewish religion could have boasted two millennia, of special revelation of God through godly and noble men of the faith. So people like Abraham, Moses, and David, these were godly men who have had their legacies last throughout the centuries to the present day at the first century. And that was a lot of impressive history that they could fall back onto. The magnificent words, the mighty deeds that they did in the name of God was something that they could be proud of and not be ashamed of their religion. God communicated His identity, who He was like, and what He did through these men, and they are recorded in Old Testament history. So this belied a very impressive history to their religion. And in many places in the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, it exhorted the people to remember their history. So many times in the Psalms, it's, it calls the people to praise God and to remember His steadfast love. And the way that they would do that is to remember how God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, how he fed the people of manna, how he brought them through the river Jordan, how he gave them their promised land, how he gave them the victory over their enemies, how God instituted the temple and the way that he should be worshipped. It's all this kind of history embedded in the Old Testament scriptures, which which looks so impressive. And so this was a glorious way and a glorious history to boast of and nothing to be ashamed of. And... The temptation is to bank or go back to that history because it looks impressive. Many people back in the first century would have been impressed with that sort of thing and it was very easy for the Christians in the first century to go back to that. But, but point two is, though God has spoken through his prophets, he is finally and fully spoken through his son. And If we read verse two, it shows that. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son. Very interesting that the author says, post-Christ, he views this as the last days. And this is the writer saying that this is the peak moment of history, the culmination. There is nothing afterwards to supersede this. This is the point of history which everything has been lined up for. It's about the Lord Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. There is nothing greater than that, not even the impressive Old Testament history, and nothing will come better afterwards. This is big, because throughout Jewish history, there's been this crescendo of expectation as God has made prophecies and promises that he would one day send a redeemer and a person, a king, to rescue his people. They have been waiting centuries to work out who this is. And so from the time of people like moses he looked impressive, he was a godly leader. Building up from that, King David. There was a time where people might think King David was the promised um, king, the Messiah, with his love for God and his steadfast desire to uphold his laws. And then even Solomon, the one who built his temple. And yet after that, they were drastically disappointed as they are all shown to be, although great kings, but flawed sinners who could not fulfill the role of God's Messiah. So, we mentioned how impressive the Jewish history is. We got to compare that with what did the Christians have in the first 10th century to match up to that? And from a worldly point of view, it seems pretty dire. They had their Messiah, Jesus only. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the sacrificial systems. They didn't have this fire and brimstone that would come out at the mouth of prophets. But they had Jesus. And most of the people who or around at that time, would have been most unimpressed by Jesus. To them, they would have thought that he was this re- rebel, this rebel who tried to stoke up the people to rebel against the Jewish empire, and yet got his just deserts by getting executed, and that was the end of him. Or even the Jewish people at Jesus' time, you read this in the Gospels, they thought he was a blasphemer, and that he deserved to die, and got his just deserts. And from their point of view, Christianity looked unimpressive, their leader had died, he's in the grave, and that's it, leaderless And what's there to be proud of? It's very easy for the people of the early church to be ashamed of. Only the New Testament believers would have known that Jesus had risen from the dead, ascended on high, and reigned in glory. But in the meantime, they are this group of believers, although indwelt by the Holy Spirit, had that alone, Jesus is in heaven, and nothing else. And so you can see why it's very tempting for them to be embarrassed, whereas the Jewish people had these customs, other religions had their customs, and it looked very impressive. So that's a very big temptation for the people to turn away from Jesus. But the author of the Hebrews says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The culmination and high point is Jesus. It's not to go back to the impressive Old Testament ways of, worshiping God. It's not back to the um, sacrificial system, not back to the temple, not back to the size of wonders of Moses and Elijah, but it's in Christ. God has already stamped his authority on Jesus. We read from Mark that out of all people, God the Father rarely speaks in the scriptures, but when he does, he points to Jesus, declaring him as his beloved son, and that we are to listen to him. And if there's any more evidence that God has picked Jesus to be the king, the final culmination of history, he rose him up from the dead, showing that his sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God. So how about now? So that was the easy temptation to embarrassment to desert Jesus back in the first century. How about us now today? We live in a country where we, as God's people, the church, are in the minority. Churches around the country are getting shut down and all we have visible is God's word and a small collection of people. It doesn't look very impressive. And also, to back that up, God's word by society and the church are often viewed very negatively. We're seen as old-fashioned, backward, hateful and oppressive. So, it's very easy for us to get embarrassed about Christianity when all we have is the word of God and a church with Christ on high, but the world can't see Christ. And so, What the author of the Hebrews has to say to them, he has to say to us. So, how do we deal with this temptation to shame? Some churches go back to the glitz and glamour of worldliness and worldly paraphernalia. Um, People boast in architecture, statues, and other kind of things to show worldly impressiveness. Others may be tempted to change the teaching to make it more palatable to society, or try to be inclusive by referring to other religions. But if we really understand the grasp of these first four verses in Hebrews, in fact the whole of Hebrews, you will understand that Christ is glorious and that he is enough and that we ought to stick with him thick and thin and not turn back to the old ways. But in order to do that, we need to believe that Christ is better than any other ways. And this is what I'm going to say is um, my main focus of the talk, why Jesus is better. And it's all within these four verses. Uh, first reason why Jesus better, is better is his nature. Jesus is God's son. So, very helpfully, we get a distinguishment between God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so, we have this differentiation between prophet and Son. Jesus alone is the Son of God. And what that means, he has, has a unique relationship with God that no one else has. No one else has the intimate closeness to God like Jesus did. Before the world began, before the foundation of the world, there was Jesus with the Father for all eternity, enjoying perfect unity and perfect joy. No one else had that, not even the major prophets like Abraham. Not even Moses, not even Elijah, and certainly not the other religious figures of today. No one can relate to God, the Father, like Jesus, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not anyone else. This is God's Son. And when I say God's Son, this isn't to reflect what many people might think is a flaw, like Islamic or Jehovah's Witnesses' understanding. What we don't mean by God's Son is that Jesus is a created being, or was somehow created via progeny, but this reflects the closeness and unique relationship that Jesus had with the Father. That is what we mean by, or that is what the Bible means by Jesus is God's Son. And no one else delighted the Father like Jesus did. No one else did God say, this is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased in the baptism. This is my beloved Son, listen to him. No one else got a explicit verbal commendation in the Bible apart from Jesus. And so, that's just one reason why Jesus is Jesus is God's son. He, him alone does God enjoy a perfect unity and relationship. Him alone knows God perfectly. No one else. There makes no sense to turn back to any other religious figure or any other custom to know God when Jesus is already the one who knows God and he promises that all who know Jesus know the Father. Do you remember what um, Jesus replied to Philip when Philip said, show us the Father and it will be enough? Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. And that's Jesus communicating that if I am in perfect relationship and the perfect divine essence like the Father, they share the same divine nature, they're in unity and if that wasn't enough, in verse 3, it shows us also that Jesus is God's son. Oh, his nature reveals that he is God's son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, What the scriptures say is he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus exudes the glory of God. By his very being, he, he shines forth the glory of God like no one else. Not even Moses, when he had to cover his veil or his face, could shine the glory of God like Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God, he shows it to all people and that shows that only God can have God's glory Jesus by having showing and exuding this glory shows himself to be God and to say, like, the exact imprint of his nature in the next part of the verse shows that Jesus has the exact nature that God the Father has so it's unfortunate that Many people misunderstand the nature of Christ because we often we often teach that he is truly man, and that's essential. That Jesus is a man; he is the most manliest of men, so that he could actually die on the cross for our sins. But we also need to remember that he is as divine as God the Father. There's no deficiency in. The divine nature of Jesus is as omnipotent or all-powerful as God the Father. He is as all-knowing as God the Father. He is as all-good as God the Father. He is as all-present as God the Father. And so Jesus, by nature, is God. And that is one of the reasons why Jesus is better than any other religious figure or any other religious tradition. Second reason why Jesus is better is his work Look at verse two again. Um, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Passages like this, and Genesis one and John one, all show that Jesus, in fact, is the one who created everything in this world. Jesus is the one why things exist, why stars exist, why you exist, why anything exists. John, it says, without him, there was nothing made that was made. And so Jesus' work, why he is much better, is that he has made everything. And if you think about it, what kind of... Who's the only one who can make everything, especially everything out of nothing? It's God alone. And any time you try to make something of your own from nothing, you'll see a massive failure. If you just ponder... All that you see in this universe, all the impressive stars, all the impressive nature and scenery that you see, even the skylines of London, and you, you come to recognize that, in one sense, Jesus made that. How impressive and great is Jesus? All the things that the people of this world are amazed at. You should know Jesus made that. Uh, his work, Jesus Made All Things, but also in verse 3 it says Jesus upholds the universe. Not only is he the creator of all things, he alone is the, thi- is the one that ensures that these things continue to exist and run the way they are. Now, I'm no cosmologist, but scientists often say that in order to make things continue to work around here and why planets are not caving into the sun, why we're not flung out into space, it's because there's this really tightly regulated laws of nature that keep us together and the Bible says it's Jesus upholding and sustaining those laws Jesus is the reason why things are still existing and why we're all not collapsed into one small ball if you think about it, it's an amazing thing we're amazed at scientists are working out these really complex equations to describe how things work in this world how much more so to make it and then keep it going without it letting go loose, it is stunning Jesus upholds anything it's often said that if God were ever, and God forbid this happens, but if he ever ceased to uphold the universe, the universe would cease to exist like pulling the plug out of a TV. Like, it would go zap. The only reason why anything happens now is because Jesus is upholding it. No one else, him alone. And then another one of his works in the passage is he has finished his redemptive work. Continuing on from verse 3. Uh, he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is looking back into already what Jesus has done. Remember the words on the cross in John 20 when Jesus said, It is finished. What did he mean by that? He meant that his very purpose of being on earth, the re- reason why he became a human, to die on the cross for our sins. It is done. Because what happened on that cross is that by dying in our place, Jesus took the punishment of the sins that we committed all on himself. So that any dirt and filth and sin, and the times we've broken God's laws and rebelled against him, have been dealt justly. It's not as if God is overlooking the sin, but he has dealt justly with it because Jesus took it on himself. And he experienced the wrath of God, the holy anger of God on that cross so that those sins are paid for and that anyone who believes in Christ, there is nothing left to pay for. It is all there. And not only that, he lived that perfect life in full obedience to the law of God. Never once did he fail to uphold the law of God. All the time, he loved the Lord as God of all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. And in God's book, he receives 100% commendation and the beautiful thing about the Christian gospel is that if you believe, that 100% commendation is given to anyone who believes. So not only is the dirt of our sin wiped away from us by Christ's death on the cross, he gives us those rows of righteousness, of the perfect deeds of Christ in his life, in replacement of those dirty rags. He has purified us. He has cleansed us. This is, this is the most amazing thing. If you think about how holy and great God is, it just explains some reasons why God is amazing and brilliant. And then we have a sober analysis of ourselves, how bad we are, the things that we think, the things that we say, the things we do. How is it that God can have anything to do with us? Why would he ever smile upon us? Why would he ever love us? And yet he does because Jesus has purified us. A holy God is able to dwell near sinners because the holy God in his grace has purified us from our sins and has been willing to dwell with us. And Jesus has done it after making purification for sins. His work is done. No one else could do this. No one else died for your sins. Muhammad didn't die for your sins. Buddha didn't die for your sins. Moses didn't die for your sins. Your family didn't die for your sins. Nor could they. They sinned themselves. But only Jesus died for your sins. And to turn back from this is insanity. Insanity. The finished work of Christ. Why would any and all that's achieved by enabling you to draw near to God? How could anyone in their right mind turn away from this? So that was the so reason one for why Jesus was better. It's because Jesus is God's Son, His nature. The second reason why I said Jesus is better is His work, His creator work, His upholding work, and His purifying work. The third one is. His inheritance why Jesus is better. And what I mean by that is what belongs to Jesus. And we see it in verse two B. So but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now heir means what, what someone is entitled to. And this talks about what Jesus is, is what belongs to Jesus. The Father has appointed Jesus as the heir of all things. He's appointed everything under Jesus' rule and authority. So, not only does Jesus own all things now, but we also read in places like Romans 8, after God exercises his justice and his judgment and redeems his people and his creation, Jesus alone will be the heir of all things. All things will belong to him for all eternity. No one else, just him. That's an amazing thing after just just judgment and now we're into eternity who who, 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 what what does does this belong to Who, who does heaven belong to it's Christ and all who believe in Christ and that's an astonishing offer of God how can we turn away from that Christ's inheritance is now and it's in the new creation, and not only does he have a glorious new creation inheritance, he has a better name than the angels. Um, so At Sunday school today, David did a very good job at enacting a shepherd. We saw in Luke 2 how even seasoned shepherds who would have dealt with lions and wolves were absolutely put to fright by angels. Angels, in their radiance and their beauty and their gl- glory, terrify even the most stiff-hearted and strong and brave men. And yet, even the angels have nothing on Jesus. So, In Isaiah 6 and Luke 2, we see the angels are glorious, they're terrifying men, they're, they're radiant white, they're immaculate, but we see in this passage, they have nothing compared to Jesus. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, all these things that Jesus has done... Proves that he is is Lord, he is God, he is King, and he is much better than angels. Angels will do, at this very moment, bow down and sing praises to Jesus. And one day we'll see it in the book of Revelation. All that happens, all the day, is angels bowing down before Jesus is singing, holy, 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 worthy to be worshipped. And not only will it be angels, but in Philippians 2, one day, everyone no, Dead or alive, male or female, doesn't matter how long ago, they will bow the knee to Jesus. After they get raised from the dead, and on the judgment day, they will bow down to Jesus and say, see Jesus' radiant glory. He is the king. He is the maker. He is the judge. He has a name better than any other name. He is glorious. So that's the third reason from this passage why Jesus is better, his inheritance. And so how do we put this into action? we see the temptations to deviate away from Jesus because of sin, because of the embarrassment about being a Christian, about the suffering that involves being a Christian. What's the antidote? It's to see that Jesus is better. And how? what, what does this passage say why Jesus is better? Jesus is better because of who he is. He is the Son of God. He alone is with the Father. His work, he makes all things. He upholds all things. He has Cleanse us if we are believers from all our sins. And it's inheritance. He, will, he does own all things and he will own all, own all things one day. And he has a name better than the angels. So my first point is, behold our king. Look at our Lord Jesus. Does he amaze you? You've just seen so many reasons just from this passage alone why Jesus is glorious. And then when you read the Gospels, you have even more reasons to see Jesus as glorious. You see things like his teaching, his examples, his miracles, his compassion, his graciousness, ultimately his death on the cross and his resurrection. There is so much about Jesus that shows him to be glorious. The problem is not that Jesus isn't glorious; is that we often need to be reminded that He is glorious because we forget. So, if you see Jesus in His Majesty clearly, and you know that He's glorious, what's the implications of that? And well, the implications are that you need you be proud that you're Christian. It's not often said. We often think being proud is a bad thing but if there's anything to be proud of it is the Lord Jesus Christ and you as a Christian are privileged to have something that none of the rest of the world will have Jesus loves us Jesus loved us and he showed it by dying for us on the cross he has welcomed us into his family he calls us friends he calls us brothers and sisters and isn't that enough to bear any reproach that comes our way in this life of being a Christian? Whether it's sin, this nagging away at your heart, your heart's desire to do something that you know God says no, but you know that Jesus is glorious, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus has welcomed you into his family, that can only override that impulse to sin. If you know that Christ is glorious and loves you, you could bear the mocking remarks and the insults of being a Christian, you could take that. If you know that Christ is glorious and loves you and has made promises to you that are beyond anything this world can offer, you can go through anything, any suffering, and know that Christ is enough. But for those who don't know Christ yet as the glorious King, I just hope, well certainly from today you see that what's written in God's word that there's every reason to know that Christ is glorious. Christ is indeed glorious and all the cheap insults that people often say don't stick. He has already come. He's come as a man and that's what we're celebrating as Christmas. He's already fulfilled the centuries-long promises and the hundreds of promises that God's already said. He's already lived the perfect life obeying all of his commands. He's already taught authoritatively from the word of God. He's already Shown compassion and healed the sick. He's already offered the all sufficient and once for all time sacrifice on the cross. He has already rose gloriously from the grave. He's already in heaven and he will come back one day to, in glory to judge the earth. He is glorious. And if you're not a believer yet, you need to see that he is and you need to come to him. So, just, the main point is this. Jesus is glorious. Believe in him and turn to him. And don't let anything turn you away from Jesus. He's the only one you need. You don't need any gimmicks, anything else, any other religious figures or traditions to get you through life as a Christian. You just need to keep your eyes on him. This Jesus is our God. He is our king. And he is glorious.